From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. When Kitty Murray and her husband Bill moved to Clarkston, Georgia, she never expected she'd be running a coffee shop that doubles as job training for newly settled refugees. And yet that's exactly what she's doing today. It's a coffee truck on a mission, and that mission is creating jobs and community in one of the most diverse square miles in the country. That's from a CBS feature on Refuge Coffee. It's a food truck that evolved into a brick-and-mortar staple for the Clarkston refugee community, a place to spend some time and build connections between neighbors. And they're expanding to Atlanta later this month. Here to talk about its impact on Clarkston are founder Kitty Murray and Leon Shambana, former Refuge Coffee trainee turned customer experience expert. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. We're delighted to be here. Well, Kitty, I'm going to start with you because you and your husband decided to move to Clarkston specifically for the robust refugee community there. What were, what were you looking for? You know, I think we were looking for a community that um, a community that didn't look just like us. We were also looking for a place where we could help and be neighborly. We didn't have a specific way we wanted to do that. We just thought we would be neighbors. You know, all of us are needy, but it felt like Clarkston had a set of specific needs that possibly just by living there, we could be a part of meeting. And so we just moved there to be good neighbors. And Leon, you are originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo. How did you come to live in Clarkston? Yes. When I came Immediately from where I was, I was in Swaziland for almost uh, nine years and a half. So in a refugee camp? Or? Yes. As I get a chance, I was not right in the refugee camp, but I was in town. But as a refugee, I always participated in all activity for the refugees inside a camp. So when I come from Swaziland to here, USA, I just come to stay in Claxton, since day, I'm still in Clarkston. So what was it like for you when you first arrived in Clarkston? You know, what, was there any place to meet other people? I, there was no place to meet other people except the person, you know, maybe he can come from your country, he can come, he can speak your language, that's all. But when we come to Refuge Coffee, I find myself at home because it creates a shelter which diverse cultures. So... That is uh, the time I start leaving my home from a million of kilometers from my home. Yeah. So Refuge Coffee bid me a new, a new shelter. Why? Because of the people we met, and then we create really a good place to be. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kitty, you weren't planning on getting into the coffee business when you first moved to Clarkston. How did this happen? How did you decide to open the coffee shop or food truck? Yeah. It, was, it was not the plan at all. It evolved, and it evolved out of three kind of urges. One was I do love coffee um, a lot, and at the time, my day job was writing, and I, I did most of that from home or in coffee shops. So I thought, we just need a coffee shop in Clarkston, and at the time, there wasn't one. Uh, and, a, you know, coffee shops are great. You can go spend $5 and stay all day if you want to. So there was that. And I wanted a coffee shop I could walk or ride my bike to. Um, the second thing was I quickly, my husband and I both just fell in love with our community and the people there and their stories and their cultures. And 
I just had this desire to introduce people to each other, you know, mm-hmm. to for our friends outside of Clarkston to know our friends in Clarkston. And I had read somewhere that 85% of immigrants to our country have never been inside an American home. And that just felt like a big hospitality gap. And so a coffee shop seemed like a great way to close that gap. And then finally, one of the things we found ourselves thinking about and mostly just praying for were for jobs because our neighbors, no matter how skilled they were, what kind of education they had, did not have opportunities for good jobs that led to flourishing. So this idea that we could introduce people to each other, create jobs, and then some job training to go along with that, um, and do it in a context that just sounded really fun (laughs) to me. It all just kind of came together. And we even started out um, doing some block parties on the street to kind of test the idea and see if the community wanted that. And we we did coffee pour-overs using propane burners, you know, so it was very grassroots. And what we discovered was the community did want it. And so it just kind of grew from there. Well, I want to key into the training part because, Leon, you were one of Refuge Coffee's first trainees. Before that, you were working at a chicken processing plant, right? Yes. So how was that different, the, those experiences? Hmm, the difference is very big. They, they can't they can't match because to the chicken plant there is no there is no time you can talk to someone you don't have that time much because in front of you have the machine they are running the chicken so you have to deal with the machine to cut what you're supposed to do but to refuge coffee I'm dealing with people imagine when I'm serving you a cup of coffee I talk to you how are you doing what's your name you know I'm serving the same time we are talking we are exchanging it even improved my English. It does. This is one of the mission of Refuge Coffee because when we come here without a word of English in this country, uh, you yeah, like someone is not yet free because uh, everywhere you go, you need someone to translate you. So with Refuge Coffee, it helped me a lot. Since I'm the first trainee, we had a job training for English classes and to catch up with the the ethic value of job, uh-huh. yeah, because the work ethic, mm-hmm, right. the work ethic of job, so it helped a lot with refugee coffee. Well, Kitty, the, plenty of other barista and cafe-based training programs for refugees throughout the country and in Clarkston. But you're not just training employees on barista basics, as Leon said, speaking English. What are some other parts of the program? What are you doing for for newly settled refugees? It took us a while to figure that out. Like we didn't jump right in and say, here, this is everything we want you to learn because we know better. You know, we, we knew that we didn't know better. And so we, over the last few years, have developed a curriculum. And the curriculum even starts with our mission. Like we, we start with this concept of welcome, which is universal. Like it's a universal need and a universal capacity that humans have. And so we start with what does it mean to be a welcomer? And I have to say that we learn more from our trainees than they learn from us about that. So that's where it starts. Um, We do a lot around how to identify what your dreams are and then how to achieve those dreams. And not how to achieve them overnight, but how to kind of set out a plan um, to achieve those. So right now we have three former trainees who are college students, um, and that was part of their dream. But as refugees, they didn't have the 
privilege of dreaming. So uh, that part of it is very geared towards each individual. It's different for every person, just like it is for anyone. Um, We also include just the basics of the citizenship exam. Um, so it involves a lot, and there we we try to make it a really rich experience. We decided early on we wanted to go deep rather than wide. So we spend a year to eighteen months, and trainees work with us full time. That's Refuge Coffee founder Kitty Murray, also with me, former trainee Leon Shambana. So this is a nonprofit. How is your is your funding actually coming from sales of coffee? Half of it is, Mm -hmm. a a little over half now, and that's really because of the refugees who run our business side of what we do. So some of our funding comes from that, and then the other comes from just generous donors and, you know, a few grants here and there that we've been able to to get. Uh, But it's a lot of people just giving a little who've really helped us get this off the ground. Putting any group of people together from a lot of different places in a job program or in a business situation can lead to some cultural clashes, especially if you've been coming from places that where there has been conflict. Are there any challenges that you've come across adjusting to each other? Maybe, Leon, you could answer this for me. Yeah, sometimes talking about cultures and where we come from, what I would say maybe can start laughing before I say it. You know, I was a first trainee, and then uh, one of my first teacher was uh, Jessica. And then I had one customer who, she was my friend. And then one time I realized that she already gained a word. She became a little bit fat she was before. And then I was happy. And uh, Jessica asked me, Leon, what are you going to tell her? So I'm going to tell to congratulate her because she has gained a word. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica told me, hey, Leon. Never, never, <laughs> ever do that here. <laughs> so I was a little bit confused because where I come from and here, that is a kind of a small thing. Mm-hmm. And then see the cultures almost upside down because... Right, somebody who gained yeah. weight in your culture meant they're yeah, health, they have they food, they're they, happy, they, they're they healthy. Said she, they said she's in, in, good, in, good, in good health. So that was about to go and congratulate her. And Jessica served my life. From that day, I learned that why. So we learned a lot of things. We, we, we really enjoy the diversity of culture because something is allowed here, is not allowed here. But and then we try, we compromise, we live together, and then we like that. You should be very grateful to Jessica. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, very, I'm very grateful to her. Yeah. Well, so... Kitty Refuge Coffee began in 2015 as a single food truck. Actually, I should say as propane burners and pour overs and a food truck parked in a garage in Clarkson. Now permanent location in Clarkson and opening up a new shop in Atlanta. So how do you expect things to look differently in Atlanta, which is not as clued into refugee communities as in Clarkson? Oh, that's a good question. Um, And in fact, we've had a lot of discussion about that. And we... We were reminded, well, first I want to say early on, I remember Leon saying, we want to put Clarkston on the map, you know, and I think we want to represent Clarkston in the city of Atlanta, and we don't want to forget Clarkston. I mean, Clarkston is our home base. It's the, it's the, really the birthplace of our mission. We think it's a very important little 1.4 square miles, but I also think, um, you know, I, if 
If I wanted to put our mission into one word, our whole business into one word, it would be that word welcome. And the neat thing is we're moving to Sweet Auburn, and I love Dr. King's description of the beloved community. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we're taking the welcoming community and we're joining hands with the beloved community. So we'll be a few blocks from Georgia State campus. Uh, College students just tend to be very clued in. One of the things I love about our location in Clarkston is that our customers are typically very curious and very gracious. You know, they just... I mean, they're treated well. Leon leads the charge in making people, you know, extend welcome really, really well. But I also think the people who come want to learn and want to engage. And, you know, I even tell people when I have a meeting with them in Clarkston, the meeting is going to be fun, but the interruptions might be even better. Hmm. Like we're going to be interrupted and conversations will happen that you didn't expect today, but just be prepared for that. I hope that's the way it is uh, in Sweet Auburn as well. Kitty Murray, she's founder of Refuge Coffee in Clarkston, Georgia. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Leon Shambana, he's a former Refuge Coffee trainee and now customer experience expert. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. You will soon be welcome at Refuge Coffee in Atlanta. Yes. Thank Thank you. You can learn more about Refuge Coffee at refugecoffeeco.com. Coming up, our ambivalent relationship with artificial intelligence, which is redefining our world, like it or not. That's when On Second Thought continues. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. We hear a lot about how artificial intelligence is changing technology and could change the world. Whether discovering a cure for cancer, taking over our jobs, or turning on us to overtake the planet. But still, we love having it. From using Alexa and Siri to choosing what to watch on Netflix, there's a gap in how we use and how we think about AI. Charles Isbell was named Dean of the College of Computing at Georgia Tech earlier this year. He specializes in AI and, in an earlier conversation, helped sort out some of AI's real-world applications and potential. I asked him how, given all the different ideas we have on what artificial intelligence even is, how he defines AI. Well, there are a lot of definitions of AI, uh, including some that are very, very technical, but I have a couple that are my favorite. Yeah, I want the fifth grade version. (laughs) Well, my favorite one is pretty simple. It's it's the art, the science, the engineering, the computing, the mathematics of building systems that if people did those things, we would consider them intelligent. And so what that means is, as a person who works on AI, I try to work on problems that computers can't yet solve and people kind of can solve. Okay, so it makes us that much, it gives us more, even more potential to solve problems. Yes, and in fact, is at its best when it works with people. So it's just one facet of a broader computer science industry, but it's moved very quickly in recent decades. So what is driving this rapid development in the field? Well, what's driving AI is the same thing that's driving computer science. It's what's driving all of our big technological changes. There's two things. One is the ubiquity of data. We are recording everything about ourselves, all of our interactions. My car knows where I am. My phone knows where I am. So there's all of that data. And at the same time, we have computer systems that are now fast enough to be able to process that data and 
detect patterns in them. And that's really driving everything about technological change. But that, okay, so go to the car knowing where you are, your house knows where everything, your appliances in some cases know where you are and what you're doing, which opens us up to spying or hacking. That's one of the fears. Auto tagging our photos on Facebook uh, opens us up to privacy concerns, but we live with it. So users are trading vulnerability, which is real, for convenience, which is also real. So how do you think AI has made our life easier or even more complicated? Well, it's made it easier mainly because it's made things more convenient for us, right? I get in my car and my car immediately has decided I'm going to go home and goes ahead and throws up the the map for me and gives me the opportunity to figure out the best way to follow traffic and which way to get home more quickly. I ignore it most of the time, but, you know, it is still a useful thing to do. Uh, Siri uh, predicts the things that I'm going to need to do next, and I take advantage of it all the time. Right. So those are the ways that it's made our lives simpler. The things that we do over and over and over again, it learns how to do it. It learns how to help us do it more efficiently. On the other hand, it's made our lives more complicated because just like computers can make us do things well more efficiently, can make us do things poorly more efficiently. So all of our built-in biases, all of the things that we do, we don't do well. We can now do faster and better. Well, the biases is a big topic for you because you've you talked about the people who are designing this technology, what they bring to it. And you've pointed out that it's not the most diverse group, certainly. So how might the experiences or backgrounds of the people in the developer's room affect the end product, how we use it, how we see it, and how it delivers? Well, it's a very simple thing, right? You, Everyone comes to any problem with uh, a set of experiences and a set of assumptions about the way the world works. And basically, at the end of the day, most human beings make the same mistake over and over again, which is they assume everybody else is motivated by exactly the same things they're motivated by. So if you are not surrounded by people who've had different experiences, who might be motivated by different things, you design systems that don't reflect the needs of people who are not like you. Now, this is easy to fix. Right. You just bring in more and more people who have uh, more diverse backgrounds, who come from places or wanted to solve problems that you want to solve. And we know that when you do that, you get better products in the end. You get uh, you get better services. Everything in the end is better. Well, historically, there's been a lot of innovation coming mostly out of the Bay Area, certainly some out of New York City. But in recent years, Atlanta has become a technology center in the South, particularly for African-American men. Mm -hmm. So what do you think has drawn them to this area of technology and how can you encourage more? Well, so there's an interesting premise in the question. I think it's less that people have been drawn to this area than they were already here. Uh I think if you want to have a diverse workforce, there's a couple of things you can do. You can convince people to hop on a plane or hop in their cars and drive halfway across the country and live someplace they haven't been, or you can come to where they are. If you're in Atlanta, you're surrounded by a diverse population with a particular set of experiences. You should be here where the people are rather than force them to go to the other side of the world where you are. Ah, So develop the talent that is there. Develop the talent that is there. Help them to uh, accomplish the things that they can accomplish and the things that they want to accomplish. How is AI playing a role in Georgia communities and industries today as you look over the big picture? Well, in in every way possible. I'll tell you something I I learned a couple of years ago that sort of amazed me. Uh, We are one of the centers of uh, building robots that debone chicken. So apparently that's a really, really big thing. Uh, And we're at the center of it. Georgia Tech and particularly GTRI, which is our applied research arm, uh, puts a lot of energy and effort into that. So it's not... The things that are obvious to you, the the series, the Alexas, your car can drive, those things are kind of obvious. That's where you think everything is. But the truth is they're deboning your chicken. They're picking your fruit. They're 
making differences at the very low level. And it's affecting every single thing that you do. Which is one of the fears that people have, that the robo-apocalypse is going to take over all of our jobs. And by some projections, hundreds of millions of jobs will be taken over. So what, which jobs are particularly vulnerable? We know that repetitive labor is being replicated by robots. What do you see? Every single job. Yeah. Every single job is Yours, vulnerable. My, your, your job, my job? Every job at mine is vulnerable. <laughs> uh, every single job is vulnerable. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that everything that we do is ultimately repetitive. In fact, uh, in my own research, one of the things that I discovered is that you can predict what pe- people are remarkably predictable. I can watch you for a weekend and know everything about you. The second thing I learned is that people hate being told that they're repetitive, but they are. We know that we have machines that can do a better job of determining whether someone is likely to have cancer than doctors who have been working on this their entire lives can. Everyone is vulnerable in that sense. But the good news is that even though everyone can have parts of their job taken away by computers, remember they're more efficient than we are and they don't get bored. If we work with them, then actually everything turns out to be better. If the machines are partnering with us, if the algorithms are partnering with us, then allows us to do the things we're good at and allows the machines to do the things that they're good at. I'm thinking of, you know, how people kind of react a little smugly when they hear that, um, uh, for example, Elon Musk, he said he's going to automate his entire Tesla workforce with robots, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't work out. So we're a little bit happy about that. We're a little, we're just a little bit happy. <laughs> we're about just that. a little bit. Well, first of all, why didn't it work out? And then I want to get to like what is going on with us emotionally when we get challenged by this. Well, the reason it doesn't work out is because the problem keeps changing, right? If you automate away uh, your note taking, so you have a computer that you can look at your notes for, well, that just frees you to do other things that you didn't have time to do before. So. Parts of the job goes away. Uh, part of the things you used to do are no longer available to you. But now you can do other things you couldn't do before. And you just can't catch up. The machines just can't catch up as we keep changing what it is that we happen to care about. So is that one of the reasons I want to pick up the, the what we're afraid about after? But is that one of the reasons why when we think about, you know, by 2019, we're all going to have uh, assistant robots. We're going to, have, you know, moving sidewalks. All of these things are going to have changed. Is that why it hasn't kept up with, I guess, our projections because the technology isn't there, because things keep changing? I think it's because things keep changing. What it is we want to accomplish changes every single day. And that's perfectly fine. In fact, that's good. Otherwise, we would have nothing to strive for. Uh, And I think that once we have automated cars driving us everywhere, it will free us up to do other things and there'll be more problems to solve. The problems will never go away. The machines at their best will just help us to work better on the problems that we happen to care about. Charles Isbell is with us. He's professor and dean of Georgia Tech's College of Computing. Well, thinking about the future of the field often provokes this anxiety. I know I'm focusing on the anxiety. That's probably telling you something. I'm going to start with that. Here's an iconic clip of AI gone bad from 2001, A Space Odyssey. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Yes, the robot takeover. And that's from the 1960s, right? What, 1968? People have reimagined the many twists on machines so far advanced that they think for themselves. Is that something that you or your colleagues actually imagine as well? I mean, 
Sure. I mean, most of us got into this. Well, I got into this for the deep philosophical questions. Are we actually going to be able to build something that's as intelligent as we are? What would that mean? What would it mean to grow something like that and have something that might live for centuries? What, what, you know, what could we do if we, if we had that sort of thing? So I think a lot of people are motivated by that. Uh, I don't worry about it. I think that if we build a hyper intelligent thing, it will be bored with us. But I think the idea that we're going to build a hyper intelligent thing anytime in the next century is highly unlikely. Well, maybe here we should distinguish between ANI or artificial narrow intelligence and AGI or artificial general intelligence. Mm -hmm. Is that helpful? It is helpful. So if most people, when they think of AI, think think of uh, commander data on Star Trek, the next generation, Mm -hmm. for example, something that's just as intelligent as we are and probably strives to be human and to have emotions. And that's fine. In fact, I think that that's very motivating. But Everything that we do has automation. Everything that we do has AI in it already. Uh, and each one of those things is AI. I will tell you the hard part about being an AI researcher in the end. It's not the problems you have to solve. It's that every time you solve some problem, people decide it's not AI anymore. What, what do you mean? Well, you know, you, you've pushed to the point where we can recognize people. You've pushed to the point where we can drive cars pretty well. But that's not really AI. You're just using some kind of trick, right? I think fundamentally it's because if we admit that we are doing a pretty good job of building truly intelligent things, then uh, it means we aren't as special as we want to yeah. think that we are. And I think much of the fear is not about losing jobs. I mean, some of that is there. Much of the fear is that we're not special. But we are special. We will remain special. It's perfectly fine. Well, I look at some heavy hitters. Bill Gates and Tim Berners-Lee uh, recognize the promise of AGI, uh, but also each voiced some concerns, and, and Stephen Hawking declared that AGI could spell the end of the human race. Now, these are really heavy hitters and big thinkers. How do you reckon that fear with the way that you think of, you know, positively about it? So I think it's very simple. I think they're making a category error. It's not that uh, AI can't destroy us all. Of course, it can. All tools can hurt. You know, we can all hurt ourselves with our tools. But the way in which they imagine it, I think, is wrong. It's not that the Terminator will rise up and Skynet will come and, and rain fire across the planet. What's actually going to happen is that we are going to change radically the sort of cultural setting in which we live by building these machines that go faster and faster and do more and more things. And we will not react quickly enough with regulation. We will not act quickly enough with the way we educate people and it will cause economic problems. It's not going to be the machines rising up. It's going to be us not thinking about how building those machines change what we do day to day. Right. If we do predictive policing, what does that mean for legal uh, legal framework or, you know, the whole judicial system, for right. example? By the way, that's a great example. And it tells you sort of the mistake that people make with AI. So I think something like 38 states use some kind of uh, um, uh, machine to, or some kind of algorithm to, the, to determine whether you're likely to commit a crime again. But it turns out we don't have any data that tells us whether you commit a crime. What we have is we have data on whether you are arrested whether you are indicted, whether you are convicted, not whether you commit a crime, but we conflate the two. And because that's a mistake that humans make all the time, the machines allow us to make it more efficiently. So then what do you do? You say, well, this is where all the crime is being committed. So that's where we're going to put all of the police, which means, of course, you will find more crime, which and it just goes on and on and on. And you make make things worse by making them more efficient. AI also has great potential to redefine relationships to each other. In the movie, Her examined what it would be like to have a deep relationship with AI. Here's a little clip. She's totally amazing. You know, she's so smart. She doesn't just see things in, in black or white. She sees this whole gray area, and she's helping me explore it. And we just bonded really quickly. 
So how far away are we from something like her or certain episodes of Black Mirror, let's say? And how might that change the way we interact with one another if we have this companion who is generated by algorithms giving us the feedback that we want? So we're far away from the full-blown AGI, but we're not very far away from something that people would treat uh, as if it's a full-blown intelligent companion. People are remarkably good at this. If you've ever had the experience, and I'm sure you have, of talking to a three-year-old or a four-year-old, what do you do? You change the way you speak to them. You talk very differently. You focus on different things. Humans are excellent at adjusting the way they, they talk to others and adjusting the way what they expect of others. And we are already there when it comes to being able to build systems that people feel good about, they feel a connection to, uh, and help them feel better. Well, you have two children, 14 and 11, I guess, years old. And you're also a professor uh, to plenty of other digital natives, right? Are their relationships to or their questions about this technology different from yours or maybe from mine? (laughs) They are different. Um, What they have is they have, it's always been this way. It has always been this way. My son, uh, before he could even speak, he was he was uh, wasn't even three years old yet, uh, would come and figure out ways to trick me out of my uh, iPad because because he wanted to play games on my iPad. And for him, this is just a natural thing. They look at YouTube on their little phones. They don't watch TV. It's very, very different. They're living in a completely different technological world. And for them, the idea of intelligent things that support them is not at all weird or strange. And their children, it will be completely different. This won't even be a the conversation that we're having now will not be a conversation that even occurs to them. What do you think that conversation will be in the future? It'll be, you know, what's next? Is it okay if I, you know, marry my robot and then want to divorce my robot? Is that actually okay? What does that mean? (laughs) Big field divorcing robots. It's the future. That's the future. We may be worried or scared, but also deeply drawn to it and fascinated. So what do you think drives that kind of complex relationship to this technology? Well, I think it's two things. I think that uh, the idea of something intelligent that we might build or we might create or help mold, it's it's the thing that drives, drives a lot of us uh, uh, for what we do. But the other thing fundamentally is we are social creatures, right? Human beings want to be a part of a larger group and being a part of... Uh, <laughs> an intelligent device that talks to you and acts as if it is as intelligent and cares in the same way that you do about the same things. I mean, we're just driven to that in general. So anything make you nervous about the growth of AI? Uh, Only that we set the expectations incorrectly. I have two concerns. One is that we set the expectations wrong and people think we're going to be someplace we're not going to be um, and don't take advantage of that. And the other is not directly related to AI. It's that we are not educating everyone we need to educate to be a part of this revolution. And if that's the case, we're going to, the next generation is going to be having a completely different conversation about the digital haves and digital has have nots and whether the robots are taking their jobs away or the robots are helping them with their jobs. And that's not a place that we want to be. That's Charles Isbell, professor and John M. Imlay, Jr. Dean at Georgia Tech's College of Computing. And we'll leave you with Kraftwerk's The Robots. There's more on Second Thought coming up right after a short break. I'm Virginia Prescott. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Poet Jericho Brown's newest book, The Tradition, was a finalist for this year's National Book Awards. Lauded by critics as stunning, riveting, and one of the best poetry collections of 2019. The gut-wrenching personal poems in his latest collection explore complex tensions between love and violence and masculinity and trauma, all within the LGBTQ black experience of the South. 
Brown was born in Shreveport, Louisiana, went to school in New Orleans, and has lived everywhere from Houston to San Diego to Iowa. Today, he is director of the Creative Writing Program at Emory University in Atlanta and joins me in the studio. Jericho, welcome. Hey, thank you so much. That's a, I love that introduction. Well, that's all you. <laughs> I like that. that. It makes me sound better than I feel. Come you through. Should, <laughs> you should just tape that and, you know, whenever you're feeling low, yeah. riveting, stunning yeah. collection of poetry, yeah. we, you can just play that for yourself. Yeah, I do love this book, so I'm very grateful. It is a beautiful, it like I do. beautiful yeah. book. And this is the, your third collection of poetry? It's now, my third book. Uh-huh. Wow. So, and, yeah. and you told your editor before you wrote it, you weren't going to have any new material oh that year. Oh, my God. Yes, I am. Um, my, my editor, Michael Wieger, is at Copper Canyon Press. Uh, they published my second book, The New Testament, and obviously this book, The Tradition. He, call, he started calling me in August, and every 30 days or so, he would call and say, do you have something that will be ready for us to bring out in 2019? He's like, send me your poems, send me what you're working on. And I was, you know, working on poems little by little here and there, uh, but things were going really slowly. So he called me in August. He, he called me in September. He called me in um, October. He called me in November. And every time I would say, in November when I talked to him, I said, Michael, you're really making me nervous here. <laughs> you got to stop with this. It's making me feel bad about the fact that I don't have anything. And he left me alone. And um, something happened between Thanksgiving of 2017 and Martin Luther King Day of 2018. I wrote... Um, 40-something poems, which is a lot of poems, especially for somebody like me. And they were strong. I felt in my spirit that I was really doing good work with with these poems. Sometimes they would come out whole without very much uh, revision to do. And so I gave him a call in January, and I said, um, you still got that space in 2019? And he said, no. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, he said, I'll look at what you got, but it's doubtful at this point. I sent it to him, and he got as excited about the poems as I was, and he decided to bring the book out. So I'm really glad. Why do do you think it all poured out at that time? Well, I think there were a few things happening. Uh, You know, art feeds art. And one thing that was going on is that I was reading uh, books that I I was falling in love with. You know, Claudia Rankin's Citizen had come out. I was seeing films that I was falling in love with. Um, Barry Jenkins' Moonlight had come Mm -hmm. out. So it was the kind of thing where there was all of this external influence coming in. Uh, And then I was also reading more fiction than I had ever read. I'm a a professor at Emory University. I direct the creative writing program there, and we were hiring fiction writers. And so I was reading uh, 300 applications of people who were applying for that job, and that meant reading their stories and their novels. And it was the most fiction that I had ever read in a very short period of time. And my... I really do believe that my response to that was to write poetry to, in order to get away from so many words, so much prose That's so on, interesting. The pre- on the page to sort of go back into myself in my own first voice. So I was reading this one kind of writing and I always needed to retreat from it to my poems and my poems were saving my life, but they were also killing me. I mean, there are literal text messages in my phone to my friends at, you know, 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. where I was saying, these poems are going to kill me if I die. Use this as a text message <laughs> to show. Because <laughs> I was up all night. I would, I would go in for meetings at 9 and 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, I, would, I would teach my classes. I would be at Emory all day, and then I would go home, and I would work 
around the clock on these poems. They were calling out to me in ways that I couldn't stop. I was writing poems on elevators, pulling my car over to get poems written down. And so it was a moment of inspiration that I was so grateful for, Mm -hmm. but also completely exhausted by, you know. Well, I want to just key into the Moonlight thing for a minute because there's so many. It's a beautiful film and deservedly won the Oscar for for the movie of the year. And in these poems... Touch between men, black men especially, yeah. is 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 aggressive and violent. And there is so much tenderness in mm-hmm. Moonlight. Mm-hmm. I wonder if those things played into how you saw these poems coming out of you. Yeah. Well, one of the things that happens in Moonlight that I do think is interesting is that the two young men who are in love also have a moment of violence. And I always, um, I'm interested in telling the truth. I'm interested in us seeing things uh, for what they really are. And I think that's what poems are about. And that's what my poems try to do. People want poems to be Hallmark cards and they are not. Mm. You know, Hallmark cards have us believe that emotion is only one way. You get a Mother's Day card and all the Mother's Day cards generally say the same thing. You mm-hmm. get a Father's Day cards, you get all the Father's Day cards generally say the same thing. Uh, but nobody feels one way about their father. <laughs> your love for your father is a colored love of various textures. Um, and that's what I want to bring out in my poems. I want to bring out that the points at which violence intersects with tenderness. Uh, and that's part of what the book is about. I also think it's really important for us to m- remember that all art has to have conflict in order for us to enjoy the celebration Uh, that comes at the end of a book or the end of a movie or the end of a poem. It's because there has been conflict before that. And uh, there's something in literature in particular where we really cannot have light unless there is indeed darkness. So uh, often when people read poems, they're like, oh, these are so dark. And the truth is that they're doing the same work that our lives are. Are our lives dark? And how can we make them more light is what I think the poems are asking. Well, there is a lot of darkness. There's this mixture of classical myth Mm -hmm. and American history, the darkness of American history, especially of the black experience, and of your own experience that come together in this book. And there are a lot of references. The word dark is used in in the book a lot. So, So I'm wondering if that experience was part of, you know, what was killing you, that darkness was coming out. Yeah, I think... um I think part of part of what was killing me is that for all of the darkness, I always had to find the light. Uh, I'm, I want my poems to be whole. If I look at something and I only see that which is ugly about it, then I have not seen it. That is not true for anything. And if I look at something and I see only that which is joyous and uh, and celebratory about it, I haven't seen it. And I want to look at things as they as they really are. You know, I was thinking about this, what you were saying about American history and, you know, there's Greek myth and there's all these things coming together in the book. And I think that's really a a good example of of what I mean. I want to cross time and space with my poems and I want to read poems that cross time and space Mm -hmm. that look at us uh, for all we've ever been and all that we are now. And writing poems helps us make our world more clear. Things are pretty chaotic when you put things down in a poem, you create an order for that chaos. And I'm interested in that supposed order for an otherwise chaotic world. Yeah. I'm speaking with the poet Jericho Brown. His latest book of poetry is called The Tradition and was named a National Book Award finalist this year, top of a number of best poetry books of the year list. But let's actually hear a poem. That would be wonderful. Let's hear uh, from this is called Four Day in the Morning. Yeah. 
4.30 in the morning. My mother grew morning glories that spilled onto the walkway toward her porch because she was a woman with land who showed as much by giving it color. She told me I could have whatever I worked for. That means she was an American. But she'd say it was because she believed in God. I am ashamed of America and confounded by God. I thank God for my citizenship in spite of the timer set on my life to write these words. I love my mother. I love black women who plant flowers as sheepish as their sons. By the time the blooms unfurl themselves for a few hours of light, the women who tend them are already at work. Blue, I'll never know who started the lie that we are lazy, but I'd love to wake that bastard up at 40 in the morning, toss him in a truck, and drive him under God past every bus stop in America to see all those black folk waiting to go work for whatever they want. A house? A boy to keep the lawn cut? Some color in the yard? My God, we leave things green. That's the poem, Four Day in the Morning, read by Jericho Brown. It's from yeah. his new book, The Tradition. Yeah. Wowie. Yeah. So you've, you've been sharing these poems all over the world since you've yeah. been on book tour. What, what kind of response do you get to that poem? It's really an interesting thing because uh, I think it's one of these wonderful examples of how the, the personal and the particular and the specific can indeed speak to the human and the so-called universal. Uh, there's this curiosity about the title, first of yes, all. Yes, I was going know? to ask you about that. It's um, Forday, F-O-R-E-D-A-Y. Yeah. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I know, right? It's hilarious, <laughs> right? Uh, but it simply means that time that's early in the morning where uh, and you know about this time in the morning, Virginia, the people who have gotten this uh, room we're in together have gotten here at 4 day in the morning. Right. The people who are waiting at bus stops to catch a bus to make the breakfast for the cafeteria that's attached to the building. Uh, and I'm sort of interested in that uh, so-called class of people without whom we would not be able to live our lives. Uh, and that's that's part of what the poem is about and about thinking um, about our assumptions, about the way the world works, about the way work works, about who's doing what kind of work, about what kind of work is hard work, um, and about possibility, about the myth of America, um, the idea that you can indeed uh, work for whatever you want when there are people, obviously, in our nation who have a lot that they never worked for. They're born into it, you know, um, and there are many of us who will work hard our entire lives and not necessarily amass some idea of capitalist wealth. Uh, and that's part of what I think the poem is about. And, and people seem to respond to it in a great way. It's a poem that first appeared in Time magazine, mm -hmm. which was one of the most beautiful that's, things that's to happen a... for me because I had something I could send to my, my literal mama. <laughs> you know, I could send my mama this thing in Time magazine that was about her. I worked on all these poems in the book that are ultimately about my mother. And I really felt like, you know, this is my third book. And I really felt like I finally got my mom right. <laughs> well, that's beautiful. I mean, yeah. Time Magazine is a huge deal. But, yeah. but I'm remembering in one of the poems, I think it's about the loss of your father. You and your mom are sitting on opposite ends of the couch, you know, like you do. Yeah. And there's this kind of blank space yeah. filled in by the absence of your father. Yeah. Uh, there is trauma that you experience as a child, it mm -hmm. sounds like. Mm -hmm. But also the trauma that's handed mm -hmm. down from generation yeah. to generation to yeah. generation. Yeah. When you say you got your mom right, what were you finding in her experience that 
I don't know, spoke to you or that came through you? Well, I think what you're saying about that which comes from generations, uh, I think that's what I got from her. Um, One of the things about the book is that it's dedicated to my mother's, one of my mother's older sisters. And my mother was one of 13 children. My mother is the daughter of, of sharecroppers. Um, as young as I am, my grandparents on both sides of my family were sharecroppers, you know? Um, and I think, uh, this book really allowed me to see both my mother and my father in ways that I could be much more tender toward their experience based on their ancestors, our ancestors, what they had to go through, you know? In the United States, we have this wonderful phrase that I love, um, get away with. That's how we feel about our taxes. That's how my students feel about their grades. Uh, my students figure out pretty quickly a 90 is an A. So when you make a 91, you have expended unnecessary energy. Mm-hmm. And that is the American way. But then some of us don't get to experience that part of the American way in the same way others do, right? Right. But I'm thinking about you as grandson of sharecroppers, yeah. now teaching at Emory University, yeah. traveling all around the world. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, hasn't that American dream come true yeah, for you? I think so, yeah. I think it has come true uh, for me, but I think at a different cost, right? Um, I think the American dream coming true for for someone who is the grandson of sharecroppers means that it came true for someone who is the grandson of sharecroppers. Mm-hmm. You had to have the system of sharecropping in place for the American dream come, to come true. Do you know what sharecropping is? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, people are always excited, like, oh, you did these wonderful things and you're the descendant of slaves. Um, excuse me, exactly. Mm-hmm. Hugely problematic here. I understand myself to be an exception, right? Uh, What I'm able to do, who knows why I'm able to do it? Um, And I think we have to be really clear about black exceptionalism. Uh, It's wonderful to think about about black magic, but we also have to think about exceptionalism. We have to think about the fact that there are whole peoples out there who are working very hard and yet still suffering in this nation to eat. And we know that that's not about people not working, do you, do you understand? Yes, and it's, or, it's sort of like the, the people who are getting on the bus early yeah. in the morning that yeah. are sort of invisible to many yeah. people. Yeah. Um, but I'm wondering for you, what is it like, you know, bearing your soul through these poems and then going into a classroom as a professor where your students presumably know deeply personal details yeah. of your life? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't read the work at all, which I find hilarious because <laughs> I'm like, why are you listening to me? You haven't even read my poems. But, yeah, I think um, – it's it's part of what you give. You know, you got to lose something for anything that you want. I think my experience with being a poet is that in order to have some successes, I had some failures. And part of my failures had to do with the fact that I wasn't willing to give my life away to poetry. You have to give yourself completely. And you once it becomes a part of your life, what you give for it is also what you get back from it. It's daily. It's regular. It's normal. So me being able to say a personal, a so-called personal thing in a poem turns out to actually be a part of my daily life. And what I'm trying to teach my students is that that which is personal ultimately becomes nothing new under the sun. Uh, There's a way that uh, every poem I've ever written, I've also had people email me or come up to me to tell me, Oh, that happened to me. How did you know about that? I thought that only happened to me. Do you understand? What I you do. Mean? And I'm wondering, actually, in all of the readings that you've been doing around the world, mm-hmm. what is the most memorable bit of feedback you heard from somebody? Yeah, well, I will say this. Um, the trouble of police violence in the United States seems a feeling 
throughout the world, um, traveling to Asian countries, traveling to countries in Europe. Um, I have found that people have the same tenor of fears uh, about police and police violence and police control um, and the police state, as many of us do here. Although here we have um, other troubles because it's based on race in certain ways. Uh, so it's interesting to me that everyone has these feelings about being uh, controlled by their by their government, uh, and you know I have I have feelings about that here in the United States. So I'm glad that I've written a book that speaks to that, not just here, but for people who are part of the resistance all over the world. Jericho Brown, thank you so much. For thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Jericho Brown is director of the Creative Writing Program at Emory University. His latest collection of poems is called The Tradition. You can find out more on the book at gpbnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Mary Lynn Ryan is our executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks for your time and for listening to On Second Thought.